Today's episode of RBC Disruptors was recorded in front of a live audience. Good morning. Welcome to RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse, and uh, today we're having a very special conversation about an incredibly serious issue in advance of next week, which is Mental Health Awareness Week in, uh, in Canada and uh, in many parts of the world. And we're joined by three extraordinary Canadians to talk not only about the challenges of mental health, but what we can do with technology to address one of the great health concerns of our time. Um, you'll know our first guest, Silken Lauman, the great uh, Olympic rower. Uh, we're also joined by Sam Dubak and uh, Dan Sider. Silken is a three-time Olympic gold medalist, uh, sorry, three-time Olympic medalist, gold medalist at both the uh, World Championships and the Pan Am. Uh, We've just revised it to uh, Olympic gold medalist. That sounds good, but you're an extraordinary athlete and a great uh, Canadian. And if you've not read her book, Unsinkable, I highly recommend it. Sam Dubak is uh, chairman and CEO of MindBeacon, uh, a digital CBT, that's Cognitive uh, Behavioral Therapy Platform. Uh, Sam's a great Bay Street veteran, uh, co-founded Edgestone Capital and Loyalty Group, uh, which uh, we better know as Air Miles, and he was on the board of CAMH. And then on my far left is Dan Sider, a Canadian who's now based in uh, the Valley. He is the uh, CEO of Stigma, which is a uh, mental health awareness app. So uh, Dan, Sam, and Silken, welcome to RBC Disruptors. Great to be here. Great to be here. We're going to uh, we're going to start with a bit of uh, storytelling uh, uh, because e- each of our guests wants to share a bit about their own journey with mental health, and I'm sure this is something everyone in the room can can relate to. But Silken, maybe we can start with you. I wonder if you might touch on how you came to grips with the challenges in your past, because you had a very public life. Probably many of us felt like we've known you for uh, for years or, or, or decades, but it wasn't until after you were that great Olympian in our living rooms that you sort of came to, to, to grips with these demons, if I can call them that, from your, yeah. from your own background. So for, for me, it was when I was raising my kids who were two and four at the time, and I got to the point in my life where I just had the inability to cope. Um, I had a moment uh, outside a hotel room in Phoenix, Arizona, where I was with my two young children, and I suddenly felt overwhelming rage towards my own children. And it was a terrifying moment. And it was the moment that I first reached out for help. I called a friend and said, I don't know what's going on in my life, but um, I need some help. And she called a counselor, and that counselor called me, and that was the moment that things changed for me was when I reached out for help. Well, thanks for uh, sharing that. Uh, Sam, you, you had <laughs> and are having an extraordinary business career, but something seven years ago that really yep. changed your course. It was really the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, I was sitting at my desk at 7.34 in the morning on October 18, 2011. It's one of those moments you never forget. And uh, the phone rang, and then and it was my sister telling my brother dropped dead while walking to work in Zurich, Switzerland. And in the previous 16 months, I'd had two heart operations. Uh, my dad had died. I was very close. We had a few other, what in our business we call life events. Um, and I'm not unique. It's my version of life happens, just like life happens to everyone. It, it does happen to everyone. Um, but for me, that was the proverbial straw that broke Campbell's back. And I remember getting up at about three weeks later, or I would say trying to get out of bed. Uh, it was really hard. And turning to my wife and admitting for the first time what I didn't want to admit to anyone and even to myself. But I turned and I said, you know, I'm depressed. Like, I'm clinically depressed. I'd been on the board of the CAMH Foundation, and so I knew all the theory of it. But on that day, theory collided with reality. Right. Thank you. Dan, maybe you can share a bit of, uh, of insight from your own background and what got you going on this journey with stigma. Yeah. Uh, 
eight years ago, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. I, at the time, had no knowledge about what mental health was, even though my mom, uh, who's here today, was a psychiatrist at the time. Um, I, my whole life was flipped upside down. I didn't sleep for three days. I dropped out of school. I had all these plans to go and fix the world. Uh, I had no fear, no anxiety, no insecurities, and complete hope and optimism. But then I was locked up in a psych ward. I lost my liberty. And the next two years were the most difficult years of my life. It, it wasn't until I started realizing how my behaviors impact my wellness um, that I started to find some stability and accepting that this is something that I deal with and accepting that medication is something that's actually good for me. Um, and this started lining up towards... Uh, a belief that I developed that one day we will have technology that can automatically track our wellness. We have tools that track so many different parts of our life, but wellness actually seems like the most important metric. And why aren't we tracking that? Uh, and I'm excited to share a little bit more about that today. No, we can't wait to hear more. Um, Silken, you get to travel the country now, uh, a great country that you love and you hear from Canadians of all ages and in all places about these challenges. You can share a bit about what, you, uh, what you're hearing. It's something that everybody's dealing with. Everybody has a child. Everybody has a parent. Everybody has a neighbor, right? It's so I, I think there's this tremendous desire to sort of take it out of the closet, to start talking about it, and to normalize the conversation around mental health. Um, because the other thing that I hear a lot is, yeah, I need to get help, but it, I can't afford counseling. Mm. You know, I don't know how to get a good counselor. And there is a real lack of funding. This is a, a, a real thing for, for how much mental illness is now talked about and we're starting to you know, end the stigma around it. We have to now back it up with the resources. So great that we're talking about it, very important that we're talking about it because I think the stigma has prevented people from getting the help they need. The next step is how are we going to start funding it and how are we going to start talking about it in a way that's integrated into our healthcare model. That's a great point. We're talking about it, and that's uh, that's a huge accomplishment. Um, but what are we doing about it? Uh, the focus of today's conversation is, is technology, and what uh, do, do some of the great technologies that are changing other aspects of our life, lives allow us, or what will they allow us to do that we might not have been able to do a decade or two decades ago? Dan, I want to jump to you, and uh, maybe you can talk a bit about what, uh, what stigma is doing and what you hope it will do, and then we'll come to Sam and talk a bit about Beacon and uh, where he's taking that. So originally we built a tool that helps people manually track their emotions, um, and the whole goal with this wasn't to create a tool that made people do more work to manage something that's already really difficult to manage. Uh, so now we have software that can automatically track your wellness. So for instance, um, this could be, it, it can act like a Fitbit for your emotions, um, it uses facial recognition, uh, which I know is alarming to some, uh, <laughs> but it, it tracks the degree of happiness, sadness, and anxiety or stress that you're experiencing, um, and this unlocks a number of opportunities. I think once, once you have this tracker out there, shortly after, we can start measuring and improving your experience of navigating the internet. So we can now know uh, what content are you consuming that is emotional malware. We can know 
what content are so you, you... You just said emotional malware. Emotional malware. Right. Can you explain that a bit more? That's a fascinating... Uh, yeah, I mean, look at... like Facebook has released studies to show that uh, people who consume Facebook passively, it's actually damaging their mental health. It's causing more depression and more anxiety. Now, to what degree? What actual articles? Is it articles from Fox News? Is it... <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. We don't have the data yet, so I'm not. Um, or is it a is it a uh, certain amount of cat videos that you watch over a period of time? Um, but I, I, on the other hand, we can also understand uh, from a uh, from a computational level what articles and content and videos can you consume that actually positively impact your wellness. And once you have this technology, you could go and crawl the internet mm -hmm. and feedback information um, of the best content to help you improve your wellness. And that I'm quite excited about. I mean, who doesn't want to be fed the information that's best for their wellness? Yeah, and Dan, it's, just, it's, it, 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 it's interesting just what you're saying because I think, like as a parent, I've got an 18, 19, 20, and 21-year-old, right? I'm always saying, oh, don't watch so much of that stuff. It's going to make you feel bad. Or, you know, get out and get some more fresh air, do some more sport. And I think they're just like, ah, you know, to a certain degree. But, like, the, the fact that you can measure it, I think it's really important. Like, measure what content is doing to your overall well-being. Mm -hmm. um, this generation is just obsessed with things that you can measure, right? And so, I, I really love that idea. Right. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I think this is something that is very much seeded from the way my parents helped me learn about my emotional intelligence. They kept on asking me, "Hey." Uh, how are you feeling today? And it bugged me when I didn't have right. language to describe <laughs> right. uh, my emotions. I had uh, a very low emotional intelligence and slowly and still working on improving it. Um, and they would know that they would know which friends of mine are negatively impacting my emotional state. And who knows that today? Like, how do you know the people that you spend your time with, how they actually impact your wellness? The people that you could spend your time with, that you could swipe. Like, imagine one day you could swipe and see this person over here. We predict that they'll actually have a, the, the best positive uh, impact on your emotional state over the long term. So we're going to get into lots of privacy questions uh, <laughs> rooted yeah, there. Were a few there. Um, fantastic what you're doing at an individual level, um, but there's, there's, there's systems challenges and opportunities too. And Sam, maybe you can explain a bit about what Mind Beacon is doing. You know, here's what we're about. The vast majority of people don't get help. The vast majority of people can't get help. They either won't seek it because of barriers of time, geography, uh, or stigma, or they won't do it because they don't want to actually confess their feelings like I was back in uh, 2011, um, or they can't afford it. The vast majority of people can't do that. And, and the reality is, is if you start doing the math on the one in five Canadians, 50% in the next decade, like you start doing the math, you can't solve it with humans. There's not enough money. There's not enough training. There are not enough people. And technology is really just the enabler to us. It's, technology is not the end here at all. So what we do is real simple. Is, um, we're firm believers uh, of a 50-year-old proven product called cognitive behavioral therapy. It's been around, like I said, 50 years. There are hundreds of studies that prove its effectiveness. Do you want to explain a bit well. about uh, CBT? So what CBT mm -hmm. does, it comes out of stoicism. It was developed back in the 60s and 70s, largely popularized in a book called Mood Over, Mind Over Mood. I always reverse the two. Um, and what it really does, it teaches you how your thoughts and actions affect your emotions. 
and how you can actually do those to your advantage. And so, you know, you're on Facebook or you're on something else or someone doesn't return your phone call. And, and when you're depressed, weird things happen like, I'm not a good person because you didn't return my phone call. It teaches, it teaches you how to think your way out of that. So in, in other words, to bring you out, out of that doom spiral. And when you pair that with a therapist who you work with, what you find is you can get very high results doing it on a digital tool, when, where, how you want it. And people will actually log on that will never log on before. Mm -hmm. People will actually do it. The key is getting to that 80% or 70% of people that will never walk into our clinics. You know, we're the largest clinic operation in Ontario. We'll see 20, 30,000 people in our clinics this year for anxiety, depression, and other things. Um, but we're also now the only and the largest national provider of digital cognitive behavioral therapy. You take a rigorous assessment. Why? Because we have to measure, you have to understand what's really the problem. So we have a very deep and rigorous assessment. We then pair you with a college-registered, trained mental health professional who sticks with you. They're a person. They're not a call center. They're not a bot, although we do, we do use artificial intelligence to augment that. And then what happens, you work through our protocols, and we have protocols that cover anxiety, depression, panic, PTSD, soon-to-be alcohol, OCD, and then importantly, a lot of the comorbid decisions, because if you have a heart attack, 80% of the time you'll be severely depressed. If you have diabetes, I can tell you if you get diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, you don't walk away high-fiving people. Um, unfortunately, you get very anxious. And so we have ways you can do that. And the data from across the world shows that if you stick to the protocols and if someone works with you and shows they care and helps you through them, you can get through it better. You can actually have better results than we get in our clinics for those that are mild to moderate to moderately severe. For those that are severe or in crisis, absolutely go see the healthcare professionals. And so what we're doing is we're trying to say, let's take 70 or 80% of those people, which will work on the digital therapy, let's pull them out of the wait list. Let's leave our human resources that are terrific in Canada, but limited, Let's leave those for the people that are highly ill. And that's what we're all about. Now, I don't think we appreciate as Canadians how limited the supply of professional help is Very in the limited. country, the shortage. And it gets uh, it, into a critical level in rural Canada. If you try to find a psychiatrist or a psychologist in, in Saskatoon or North Bay, it's, uh, or Saskatchewan, I should say, or North Bay. Well, I was going to say Saskatoon, it's, you're lucky. But you yeah. go to North Bay, and the other problem is you might play golf with that person. There's lots of larger uh, companies and institutions, I'm thinking of the insurers, who are uh, <laughs> trying to address this same challenge. Given their scale, why can't they do this? Well, companies are doing it. Companies are starting to do it, and they're starting to listen. And the efforts that Silken and others are doing, George Cope and the founding of Bell Let's Talk, you know, you got to have a special shout-out to those. Yeah. But when I asked why others aren't doing it, I was thinking not of talking about it, but doing, doing something with it. Yeah. Well, and it, it, it seems like our healthcare system like covers certain things. Yeah. Like, so if you need to take a medication mm -hmm. for um, a, a mental health issue, that medication may or may not be covered depending on whether your health plan. But you can get it prescribed through your doctor. You can go see the doctor and tell them that you're experiencing depression and maybe even have a diagnosis. But you know, you're all talking about. Um, the, the, the lifestyle, the behavior, the thoughts, mm -hmm. right? So, so we know that like maybe the end result is that you wake up one morning and you're clinically depressed, but a whole bunch of things happened right. to get you there. Maybe you were working too hard. Maybe you weren't uh, addressing problems as they came up. Maybe you actually had a completely out-of-control lifestyle. Like There's so many things that impact your mental health. And to pretend that they don't, which I think is 
kind of right. what we're doing in our healthcare system is we're pretending that it doesn't matter that you don't have time to exercise. You know, again, the Olympic athlete talking about exercise. <laughs> it was predictable, folks. <laughs> you know, but I mean, exercise has a huge impact in how you feel. Endorphins are real. You know, our our brain chemistry is a, is a real thing, and you know, yoga, meditation, journaling, like all of these things. Um, some people still kind of consider woo woo. <laughs> You know, that idea that meditation might help your mental health and your physical health. But the, the, the truth is meditation uh, changes your physiology, which impacts your emotional and mental well-being. And, John, I would like to talk about that, the other issue you brought up about the insurance companies. People are starting to do something. Some insurance companies are offering discounts for the wearables and such, and such like that. Green Shield Canada great partner of ours, now offers Beacon to all their clients. Mm-hmm. Manulife, Sun Life, other great partners of ours, they offer it to their clients as well. And they're starting to jump into that. So they are starting to, but we need to get the ball rolling because what happens is we need to get people from the ground up talk, telling their employers, telling the insurance, hey, we want you to cover, the, we want you to help us with our mental health. The companies will react then. It won't be a doubt. It won't be coming from the top. It's got to be come up from the bottom. D- d- demand-driven. It's got to be demand-driven. Yeah, yeah. and, I, and I, that's, that, that's so powerful, too, because I think, we, you know, we, we have looked at, at mental health, like, to the experts. You know, let's talk to the psychiatrist. Let's talk to the counselors. But it seems like a lot of the solutions are coming from people who've had lived experience, that they're saying, hey, this worked for me, and there's nothing out there like it, so I'm going to invent it. You asked me one of my, your earlier questions when I was on the road was that people want to hear each other's stories, and they want to hear stories that are hopeful and helpful of people who've struggled and have um, overcome. And, and, I mean, everybody on the panel here is in that position, right, where there's been some really dark moments in our lives. There have been experiences that brought us to our knees. And we've taken those experiences and been changed and been built by those experiences. I think there's going to be a lot of this learned experience over the next decade that we're going to be sharing with each other. It's like, hey, you know what? Journaling, I don't know why it works, but it really works. You know, uh, I, I don't know why it works to not drink coffee when you have anxiety, but it really makes a difference. But (laughs) a number of professionals watching this may say, okay, that sounds fine, but uh, professional uh, knowledge is required as well. And it's a bit Wild West, if I can call it that right now, especially in the Internet space. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's something like 48,000 apps, uh, health and and fitness apps now on on the App Store, none of it really regulated. And I'm curious, Sam and and, and Dan, how you wrestle with that. Uh, you're, You're doing... Uh, fascinating things, but in an unregulated uh, space that is ultimately about people's health that does require some professional knowledge and standards. Yeah, so I think looking at how we have regulated uh, medication is an interesting analogy. Well, it's interesting to bring up at the very least because uh, most of the antidepressants that are out there on the market right now have a warning of a side effect that these might cause suicidal ideations. Right. <laughs> and uh, th- thinking through how do we go about regulating what are we doing today, well, the tools and products that are used by over 2 billion people are 
causing more anxiety and depression. No one's going to go, like, we, we can't really expect Facebook to get regulated. But what we can do is start pressuring these companies to, like, one, building awareness to how do these products impact our wellness, uh, which will educate consumers to change behaviors and, uh, and also pressure these companies to start. I, I think these large tech companies have the ability to have the greatest impact on society's mental health. They aren't doing that today. It might take a little while. What's the single thing you would tell them to do to, uh, to take that on? Uh, measure people's wellness. And you're, they're, they're very good at optimizing for things that they choose to measure and prioritize. Uh, if they want to go and improve people's wellness, they can measure it, and it's, uh, it wouldn't be too hard for their engineers to actually go and do that. And many of them start all, like Facebook, Google, YouTube, Twitter, uh, all have made public commitments to actually improve people's wellness. They're, they're calling it digital wellness. Uh, while it's very early on, I am excited to see what, what is to come from these technological changes. And Sam, how are you uh, thinking through the regulatory question? So the regulatory and the effectiveness question are, are obviously, in our view, highly linked. But our heritage is deep treatment versus a lot of the wellness apps you see are sort of highly or light apps. Um, and if you go through the thing, what we found was marrying the true professionals, so the work that we do, seeing tens and tens of thousands of people every year in our clinics, marrying their understanding and using digital technology to really enable them to see a massively higher amount of people in a very effective way, it enabled them to be more effective at what they do. But you start with the professionals, you start with that, and you move that into the digital world. We didn't come at it from, let's divide a, a, a digital application and let's move down into treatment. We said, how do we make this treatment as effective in the digital world and therefore make it available and accessible and affordable? You know, our full course for a full year of treatment is something like 5 to 10 to 15%, depending upon how you source it, as it would be to go see one of our clinicians. Uh, and I want to move to privacy here. Yep. And curious, Dan, how you're wrestling with, uh, with these questions about privacy, about data. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what we can intentionally and unintentionally protect. Yeah, so I, I think a, a controversial outlook. Uh, we see privacy as our biggest competition. Uh, and the more information that we can measure of you in all dimensions of your life are areas where we can help you better understand how any of that impacts your wellness and help you improve it. So there's an interesting combating force. And uh, over 60% of the population in developed countries have concerns around technology or data collection from technology companies. Uh, And our our thoughts on uh, moving forward with this is being incredibly transparent about what we do collect. Uh, We give people the option to treat the data in the way that they want to be treated as a good friend. So you're both wrestling, and you mentioned earlier, with, uh, with artificial intelligence. I'm curious, uh, Sam and Dan, where you think AI is going to take this space over the next uh, several years? Yeah, so I think uh, in the workforces, workforces are very we're, – we're talking to a large bank right now, which may or may not be RBC. We can't say at this point in time. But uh, working with them to uh, help them get a pulse on their employees' mental wellness – and get a pulse on their productivity and give them guidance on what they can do to actually improve that. Um, At a larger scope, I foresee every single company that interfaces with consumers or employees using technology to track people's wellness. 
And they, this will enable all of these companies to build products designed to improve our well-being. That sounds like a very compelling world outside of the privacy concerns. Uh, like who does not want to live in a world designed to improve people's wellness? And, and, and Sam, how soon uh, are we going to see AI playing a significant role in the space that you're uh, delving into? Oh, it already does. You know, when you say AI, let's, let's sort of make sure everybody, you know, AI is this sort of amorphous term. Um, you know, it's really uh, high-speed high data analytics at this stage. The, uh, but we're using data analytics to sort of assess. We can see people's patterns in where, how you go through our assessment, what you answer, where you answer, and the correlation with outcomes and other that. We obviously use it as well to, to measure our different therapists so that they can get better. Um, but we're very careful on privacy. And one of the things that, uh, that we're very careful about is we never use individual data outside the client-therapist relationship. It's never identified. It's always any of the databases and analysis that's done, it's always group data, de-identified to no, long, no low smaller rather than 100 people blocks so that there is, when we're reporting back and saying, hey, you know, it looks like your call center has some anxiety issues. Mm-hmm. All right? So RBC, you have large call centers around the world. Your call center has a larger anxiety issue than, say, other call centers, which we can measure through our assessment tools, is that gives you a way to say, hey, you know, that call center up at at Young and Lawrence or that call center in wherever, let's focus some efforts over here. We don't need to focus as much over there. It allows you to be on a group basis proactive, but never on individual because, you know, again, I grew up in a very uh, libertarian, I will call it, household about, you know, uh, very individual rights. I get real concerned, and you won't see us ever starting to target individuals' stuff and using that data. I get real concerned about people having my personal data right. on a de-identified basis. On behalf of RBC, Silicon, Sam, and Dan, thank you so much for sharing your time and your stories and your insights and your inspiration with us. And to the audience, thank, thank you, you for, for joining us. Thanks for downloading RBC Disruptors. Our show this week was produced and edited by VocalFry Studios. You can reach us at rbcdisruptors at rbc.com and join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag RBC Disruptors. Thanks so much for listening.